0: Welcome to the Highly Sensitive Person Podcast, a twice-monthly podcast for people who experience the world intensely. Join me on a journey of acceptance of our highly sensitive person traits. Welcome to Episode 64 of the HSP Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly, and today I am so thrilled to have with me Oliver Berkman. I discovered Oliver after I read his book, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. Actually, I read it twice, back to back. It explores the upsides of negativity, uncertainty, failure, and imperfection. Oliver is a writer for The Guardian. In his writing, he explores ideas around social psychology, self-help culture, productivity, and the science of happiness. His column in The Guardian is titled, This Column Will Change Your Life, which I think is meant to be kind of funny, but it is a life-changing column. Welcome, Oliver. Thanks so much for taking the time to be
1: here today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
0: I want to say a little bit more about your book and how I found it. Someone recommended The Antidote book to me ages ago, and I put it on my Amazon wishlist with all these other books that I wanted to read someday, and my dad discovered this wishlist. I didn't even know that it was public around Christmas time, and all of a sudden I get this book in the mail. And a while later after that, I was dealing with insomnia for the first time in my life and was pretty distraught over this terrible new development of not being able to sleep at night. So I picked my book off of my nightstand that I've been meaning to read, and Started reading at night when I couldn't sleep and it was incredible because it was like exactly what I needed to be learning about at that time. Oh. I've always thought of myself as kind of a glass half empty person. I'm sort of negative. And I know people who are really always upbeat and positive. And I always wished that I could be more like them. And I kind of thought there was something wrong with me for not being more like that. So the book actually helped me with my insomnia. It made me feel less anxious and a little better about not being one of those super positive
1: people. I'm very pleased to hear it. That's great.
0: Have you ever heard of your book as being a cure for insomnia before? Was that your intention?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, it's usually an insult when people say that, isn't it? But I think I know what you're getting. I'm not not insulted. Don't worry.
0: I did not even think of it that way, actually. (laughs) It didn't put me to sleep in a bad way. It calmed me down and made me less anxious. Yeah, no, no. I I promise. (laughs) That is funny. So I love this book so much, and I have so much that I want to ask you about. But first... What led you to write a book about this topic, which is happiness for people who hate positive thinking?
1: Well, I've been writing the column that you mentioned in The Guardian for a while when I uh, tried to take it further into a book. And I, and I think what I'd really found from all this stuff I was writing about, you know, I was trying to, I was, I was looking at popular self-help approaches and new books and all this stuff and trying to figure out, well, which of them seem to work, which of them don't, both in terms of the research and in terms of putting them into practice in my my own life. And I saw this pattern emerging. And this pattern basically was that everything that didn't seem to work for me anyway, could be grouped broadly under this heading of positive thinking. I can say a bit more about how I'm defining that. And then everything that did seem to work had this different attitude. It was something to do with being a bit friendlier with feelings of uncertainty or or sadness or, or failure. It was to do with not just going through your life trying to eradicate uh, negative experiences. Not necessarily trying to make them happen as much as you possibly can, but, but just changing the basic way that I think we've been conditioned to respond to anything negative that that comes onto our radar. So I sort of saw that there was a kind of something going on here on a, on a sort of from a sort of high vantage point. Um, and that caused me to want to explore it. So what I very much tried to do in the book is not sort of lay out here are my nine steps to a uh, perfectly uh, wonderful life, but to just go and talk and spend time with people who were in one way or another living this kind of uh, attitude to life. And, you know, looking at all the historical precedents, the ancient Stoic philosophers and the Buddhists and all these people, it's not actually a brand new idea. It's kind of a millennia old idea that I think has been forgotten about a bit in the last sort of century or two of uh, relentless uh, positivity.
0: Mm-hmm. And when you're kind of poking fun at typical self-help books and methods, what do you think is the problem with the typical approaches to positive thinking?
1: I mean, it's probably useful to give a sort of a definition because sometimes people think I'm just against optimism. And <laughs> if you get up in the morning feeling great, then that's bad. And you should try and uh, feel as bad as possible. Of course not. I mean, firstly, it's more about resetting a balance and, and sort of seeing the other side of something that we've, we've forgotten. But I think the specific thing about positive thinking is this idea that you can use your conscious will to uh, cultivate the inner emotions that you want, you can decide you're going to feel good things, uh, that you can use it to think the thoughts you want to think, you're going to use it to, to think happy and positive and optimistic thoughts, and that you can use your conscious will to just decide what's going to happen to you in the outside world. So, you know, you can set uh, really clear, ambitious goals and write them down and look at them in the mirror every day and um, refuse to believe that failure is a possibility and just sort of, you know, uh, aggressively plow on forward. So all of these I'm, I'm putting under the same uh, uh, umbrella of, of positive thinking. It's this idea that you can use the the will in this very simple way to just get what you want both inside and outside and lots of evidence as well as centuries of philosophy and spiritual teachings and everything show that something else happens you know that when you try really hard to feel happy or you try really hard not to um think about death or or bad things happening or whatever it has the exact opposite effect you know your mind rebels at being told what to do and And it's all you can think about. It all goes back to that old, um, that sort of parlor game where you challenge somebody to not think about a polar bear <laughs> for, a, for a minute. Um, and the moment someone's raised the topic of a polar bear, obviously, it's it's all you can think of. That's my, all I
0: can think about right now.
1: Right, exactly. And My argument is that like, life works a bit like that and happiness works a bit like that.
0: And that's such a great, that was such a message for me that was like... You know, the angels are singing down from heaven. Finally, I feel a little bit better. I'm not as terrible as I thought I was.
1: And it's so ironic, isn't it? It's like that happens. And this is, by the way, this is me too. I mean, obviously I'm of a personality that is drawn to this kind of approach. Mm -hmm. It's when you are, um, it's once you can sort of be okay with the fact that your moods are sometimes negative, that things don't always go well. Like that's when the negative mood lifts and you feel okay. So it's a kind of hugely ironic Mm -hmm. fact about the way the human mind works, I think.
0: And I think that's one of the biggest undercurrents of the book or the biggest lessons for me was that one of the main causes of suffering is this striving for solidity all the time or, and certainty. We don't like uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And um, this is a... You know, I think everyone can relate to this, but especially in the realm of highly sensitive people, I've talked and written about this before, how we really feel a need for control because we think about things so deeply and we plan everything and we pay attention to all the little details because we want to avoid making mistakes and we want to do things right. Mm -hmm. And now I'm realizing that that's totally (laughs) a cause for a lot of my anxiety and unhappiness is that trying to make things certain and sure in my life and solid when they absolutely can't be. And that's what I learned in your book is you have to embrace the uncertainty. So can you talk a little bit about how I can get better in embracing uncertainty?
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, listen, I don't want to ever imply that this is easy stuff either. You know, it's not like, um, I, I think it's true, but that doesn't mean that I just sort of, you know, snap my fingers and then I'm, and then I'm doing it and it's fine. But I think there are various techniques that we can definitely talk about. But I think that underneath them all, it's a sort of a perspective shift. So I think sometimes people get frustrated because they're like, okay, give me the three tips that will um, make this happen. And I have some, but, but, <laughs> but more important than that, it's just a kind of, yeah, it's a, a shift in perspective, a different way of seeing the world, which either will come on you suddenly, or sometimes will be more, more gradual. Um, I think one of the great ways of Talking about uh, security and insecurity is, as I do in the book, about um, the work of Alan Watts, who was a great sort of 1960s, 1970s. Um, he called himself a spiritual entertainer, sort of a mm-hmm. philosoph- public philosopher, I guess, mm-hmm. in a way. And um, he makes this very simple and good point that, uh, at least a lot of the time, maybe always, the cause of feeling insecure is the effort that you put in to try to feel secure so it's yes. it's the search for security that leads to uh, the the sense of insecurity because you sort of metaphorically are building up these walls around yourself you're building up uh, uh defenses mm-hmm. against the world uh delivering unpleasant surprises and of course it's only when to continue the metaphor a bit you know it's only once you've built castle walls around yourself that there is something for the Mm. cannonballs of the enemy besieging your castle to hit mm-hmm. um if you sort of managed and i as i say i don't think i've managed this just to become completely one with um mm-hmm. the universe and to feel no separation between yourself and everybody else then by definition you know there would be no uh possibility of feeling uh insecure there's a there's another um there's a, a zen uh writer who sort of compares it to the way that each of us is sort of like a whirlpool in a stream uh, in other words we are completely part of the stream but we seem sort of separate and if you take yourself to be completely separate then uh you know it causes all sorts of problems you have to sort of understand that you're part of the flow um, mm-hmm. and a lot of this insecure a lot of this insecurity reduces when you're no longer trying to you know put a box around yourself and build these walls. It's always worth adding as a caveat that I think there are specific circumstances in certain relationships, et cetera, where the idea of boundaries is still important. Right. <laughs> I, I'm not, uh, I think these, I, I don't think these points contradict each other. I think they're, they're both relevant. Yeah.
0: And uh, you mentioned Stoicism and Buddhism, which you talk about quite a bit in the book, which was, um, and that's another thing I love about the book is your writing style is entertaining and it's kind of funny at some parts but it's also very easy to understand. And I actually want to tell you your description of meditation was the first time I felt like I understood meditation.
1: Oh wow, I'm pleased to hear that. I just got back from a very similar retreat to the one I uh described in the book. Um and uh it was a, it was a little easier than than my description the first time around, but still still the uh <laughs> pretty crazy yeah what
0: was the retreat like
1: uh, well i mean it's just you know you as in the one i described in the book you go for 5 nights i went to the same place which is a lovely uh, establishment called the insight meditation society in massachusetts you get woken up at 5:15 in the morning you spend um all day, basically, alternating periods of sitting and walking meditation. Mm. And it's beautiful surroundings, utterly quiet and peaceful. It's conducted in silence. You don't even talk at meal mealtimes. Um, and the first thing you notice, of course, is that when all the outside distractions and noises are taken away, uh, you realize just what a cacophony of noise it is inside your mind mm-hmm. all the time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not that the retreat brings that on. It's just that you realize it was always there and you... Uh, haven't been hearing it so much. And then, you know, then interesting things happen and it does begin to quieten down.
0: Your description of meditation, the part of it that was so great for me is I tried to do a meditation retreat before, actually, in Thailand a few years ago. It was only a two-night retreat, so it was like a... a a tiny, tiny little meditation retreat. But I bailed after half of a day, like a couple people, we kind of like ran away. (laughs) Um, (laughs) To be fair, I think that it wasn't run very well. No one ever explained anything to us. So I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, Okay, I think meditation means that I'm not thinking about anything. And I'm not supposed to have thoughts in my head. So anytime a thought would come in my head, I was like, Oh, I'm doing it wrong. and.
1: Recipe for disaster. Yeah, yeah.
0: And I didn't, no one could ever tell me when I was doing it right, which is sort of a, you know, nobody can actually tell you what's going on in your head. But your description was so simple and basic. And it kind of reaffirmed to me like, okay, you know, having thoughts come on your head is kind of the whole point. Like, and you're just trying to improve and it takes a lifetime. You're not going to be perfect at the beginning and you might never be but that's, it's all part of the journey and you have to be very patient with yourself too, which is something I wasn't, I was like, why can't I do
1: this? (laughs) No, I mean, it's, it's so true. This, this message gets, especially because people associate meditation with like becoming really calm, Mm -hmm. very natural to think that when you kneel on a cushion or sit in a chair, there's nothing too special about the cushion. Um, close your eyes. Uh, yeah, the, the first thing, if, if thoughts come up, then, then that's bad. Uh, but as any of these good meditation teachers will tell you, you know, it's the nature of the mind to come up with thoughts. Like that's mm-hmm. what it does. Um, a better way of thinking about it, meditation, I think, is that, is that if there's a goal to it, it's to not become lost in thought. Uh, the me- the the, um, the metaphor that's always used is, is weather patterns. You know, you, mm-hmm. you, you learn to see the emotions and the thoughts coming up in your mind as, um, a bit like weather patterns. They, they come they stay for a while, they pass away. It would be insane to demand that there be no weather. Uh, And it would also be pretty insane to demand that, you know, the sun uh, stays shining forever and it never rains. But uh, to to learn to sort of relate to them in that way. So, you know, you sit down, you close your eyes, you start following the sensations of your breath, uh, either at the nostrils or the abdomen, and you completely accept that thousands of times in a half hour 20 minute period probably you're going to realize that your mind has wandered and you were just thinking about what's for lunch or uh, some stressful thing in your life and all you're going to do at that time if you're doing it right is to say to yourself you know all right now let's go back to the mm-hmm. to the breath non-judgmentally and it's kind of yeah it's that's the training the training is coming back not um, not never leaving
0: Yeah. And that was the tough part for me is I kept getting kind of frustrated at myself every time I thought would come into my head. And then I would use an app on my phone and I was doing it every day and I felt like I was actually getting a little bit better finally. And then I got to the point where I feel like I did have some periods where I was feeling pretty clear in my head and then I couldn't stop thinking about oh my gosh I'm doing it I'm doing it I'm doing it <laughs> yeah.
1: the, the retreat I was just at one of the teachers referred to how she has this thing she calls the sportscaster that like is constantly uh commenting on how well or badly she's doing. and I yeah I, that that's a huge problem there's a, on these um on these retreats you have like an interview time with the teacher where you get to talk about how it's going mm-hmm. and that just means that for the whole day before that half the time I'm like crafting what I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> of
0: course. You mentioned the constant chatter that's going on in our heads all day long. And you write about that in the book as well. Uh, I think was, that was your discussion with Eckhart Tolle?
1: Yes. No, it comes up, it comes up there for sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that was fascinating to me. I think he was saying that the biggest struggle that people have is this constant chatter in their head all the time. And they just accept that that's how life is and that it always has to be there. And he believed that you don't have to live like that. And that could make you feel a lot better. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the really important thing about this, he was great. I mean, I was skeptical because I am sort of paid to be skeptical about Mm -hmm. um, people like him. So I sort of imagined I'd go see him and he'd have some like huge ashram and Mm -hmm. covered in expensive jewelry and have all these adoring followers. Maybe he does, and he was hiding them for meeting, (laughs) But uh, I saw him in a pretty normal apartment in Vancouver, Um, and uh, and really, it's very interesting to be in his presence because it does sort of it does calm you down. Something that he is giving off that is almost impossible to put your finger on. But um, I think that uh, I shouldn't speak for him, but I think what's so important about his teaching is you know it it's not the idea that you should turn off this voice. It's not the idea that you should like switch it off and make sure it never comes up again, because in a way that would be positive thinking, right? I mean, that would be saying I'm gonna use my mind to control the contents of my mind. It's more, again, this perspective shift. It's seeing that this voice is not necessarily you, that you don't have to identify with it. Um, And if you can sort of step back and see that thoughts come up uh, in the mind, um, then it will quieten down naturally after a while, probably somewhat. But the really important thing is you're no longer just being completely controlled by this, this voice, a really useful Buddhist idea. And it certainly resonates with Eckhart Tolle's work as well is thinking about what happens in your mind. Like it's just another sense. So you've got hearing taste, smelling, touching, seeing, and thinking and emotions in the mind. So you know, you never you never make the mistake of thinking that a car alarm going off down the street like is you, uh, <laughs> or that um, it says something bad about you mm-hmm. that you've uh, that the car alarm is 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 going off. And you can sort of take that same attitude to the mind and say, well, you know, this stuff just comes up. I've got no more control over it than uh, I would have over the car alarm in the street. If I say, if I talk now about, you know, um, uh, if I talk about like a purple elephant or something, you and your listeners are thinking of a purple elephant and they have yep. no voice in the matter, Like, right? It, it was not something you controlled. And so not trying too hard to control something that is so uncontrollable, I think, is is a really good first step to sort of disentangling a bit from all those uh, those inner voices.
0: And that was big for me too, realizing that, When I have thoughts, I don't necessarily have to give them a ton of weight, and also realizing that sometimes a a feeling or a thought that I'm having might not be right, or I can ignore it and not, like you said, not associate me as my thoughts, like we're separate things.
1: Yeah. And it doesn't, and and they can certainly be looked at and trusted sometimes. And, you know, it's not like just ignore them or that they're always wrong, Um, but it's just us, you know, it's almost like you have to be a, a translator or somebody, you know, dealing with a slightly foreign language and you have to sort of figure out, well, you know, first of all, I am not the thoughts. And then secondly, sometimes they're worth trusting. Sometimes that's just the same old pattern. You know, um, sometimes you're going to feel fear because you're doing something really great. That's, uh, that's taking you out of your comfort zone, you know, all these different ways of interpreting it.
0: So can you tell us about the Stoic ideas of negative visualization or premeditation of evils, which you talk about in your book? And when I, I love reading about Stoicism, but I wonder if you are a follower of Stoicism, how do you not just sound really, really negative all the time?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, there's a bunch of really good questions there. So first of all, yeah, let's talk about negative visualization, because that is one of those like, here's a technique mm. type uh, things um, that, that is much more concrete. Okay. And this is basically the idea of dealing with anxiety and dealing with fear, especially you know fear of the future or whatever, um, by deliberately and sort of calmly and soberly thinking about what the absolute worst case that could happen uh, I'm is, good at that. and how wrong things. <laughs> could well, if you're good at this version of it, then that's brilliant. But I think what most of us do most of the time is a very sort of you know it's catastrophizing, right? It's the uh-huh. Somebody looks at a boss, looks at you slightly weirdly in the office, and then you think, Oh, well, there must be redundancies coming. It's going to be me. I'm going to lose my job. I'm not going to get another job. I'm going to be living in a cardboard box on a bridge, you know, and (laughs) you flash forward to these kind of terrible situations. And I think what the Stoics, the Stoics start from this perspective that, you know, the thing that upsets you about events in the world is not the events, it's your beliefs about the events. Mm. In some ways, that's quite a positive, thinky kind of thing to say, but. What they then say is, well, okay, if you examine those beliefs in a rational way and in a calm way, you will usually find that that catastrophizing is unwarranted. You know, um, in the example I just gave, you know, firstly, you would be like, well, firstly, I've got no evidence that uh, there's any redundancies coming at work. Secondly, I've got all these reasons to believe that, uh, that it wouldn't be me. Thirdly, this, But if I actually push it all the way through to the worst case, then what would I do? Okay, I would have to use up my emergency fund. I would have to go and stay on this friend's sofa, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you actually get there, you find that like, <clears throat> even sometimes when the answer is it would be actually really bad, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be absolutely bad. So it wouldn't be 100% bad. It wouldn't be the same as, uh, you know, a, a nuclear war taking over your town, which is right. which is what we usually do uh, otherwise. And I think what's so great about this technique is, you know, our instinct when we're anxious or a friend of ours is anxious, something is to is to reassure. It's to say to yourself or your friend or your kid or whatever, you know, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is is always secretly thinking like, well, yeah, but what if it's not fine? And and if you do that to yourself or a friend, you'll find that you, you or your friend is coming back like an hour later being like, are you you sure? And you have to replenish this reassurance. And Mm -hmm. it's this constant battle to be like, let's not think about it going wrong. Let's convince ourselves it's going to go right. If you sort of release the pressure and say, okay, let's ask what would happen if it went wrong, Mm -hmm. then instead of trying to convince yourself that it's going to go right, you can can see instead that you would be able to cope if it didn't go right. And, you know, I'm not saying that there aren't some cases where this would be extremely difficult to uh, convince yourself of, you know, there are, there are emergencies and very, very terrible tragedies that happen in life. But so much of what we get super anxious about, it's like, okay, I'm about to go and talk to an audience of 300 people. The worst case here is that I look a fool and 300 people think I'm silly. Like that mm-hmm. just about is the worst case. Or I mean, it
0: gets uploaded on YouTube and goes viral and millions <laughs> of people. Okay, millions. <laughs> okay. So, you know. Think bigger, Oliver. <laughs> <I've got> a- <laughs>
1: I think I've got at least two or three friends who would criticize me for life just because the rest of the world thought I was ridiculous. So, you know, it's like you 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 put a you put a a, a, a like a basement on your on your mm-hmm. thoughts. Like they can't go totally off into the void forever just spiraling and feeding uh on, on themselves. So that's negative visualization which the in the original translation is the premeditation of evils, thinking in advance about uh, bad things and i think it's uh i think it's seneca one of the big stoics who says that you know the other thing that this will do is make you really grateful for the things you have because you'll go through life thinking huh you know i could lose this relationship i could lose this house and you know i would cope if it happened but meanwhile how appreciative i am to have this great thing in my life and we all know from lots and lots of magazine articles and everything that gratitude is uh, is a very healthy thing if you can cultivate
0: it. I wonder if this is related to anticipatory grief. Have you heard of that type of phrase before? Like, um, let's say someone you know is sick, and then you can't stop thinking about what happens when they die, and just being really, really sad and mourning almost before they ha- before it happens, which kind of gives you a lot of maybe unnecessary grief beforehand. Yeah,
1: it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because I suspect that the Stokes would want to say, you know, if you actually Calmly and privately, and not in such a way as to make their life worse. But if you if you calmly and privately think through the experience of bereavement, you know, Mm -hmm. it'd be terrible. Of course, it'd be terrible. No one's suggesting here that this is that you'll discover that everything's fine. But you will also sort of resist that kind of very self centered um, spiral into hundred percent absolute terribleness. That would actually make you a very unhelpful companion to a friend in that in that circumstance I think to connect to what you were saying before about would you just be gloomy all the time if you were a stoic <laughs> yeah that maybe is the, the sort of British notion of stoicism right where you mm. just suppress your emotions and, <laughs> uh, and you take the sort of down to abbey approach to uh, things things going wrong and I don't endorse that I think the bigger risk with philosophical stoicism and the reason the place where I sort of get off the get off the ride, as it were, Mm -hmm. is that you would be completely calm and tranquil, Mm -hmm. even at times when that wasn't entirely appropriate. I think if you really take uh, original stoicism to the end of its argument, no number of tragedies happening to the people closest to you would ruffle your calm and you'd just be like, well, you know, this has happened. Being hysterical here would be an irrational response. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to be completely peaceful. And firstly, there's something wrong about that. You know, you want to be present for the emotional highs and lows of life on some level. You want to feel grief when people, in some sense, right, you want to feel grief when mm-hmm. someone very close to you died. You don't, you don't want it in the moment, but you want to look back and see that right. they were grieved. Mm-hmm. Um, and then secondly, I just don't think anyone could ever achieve that state of calm. What they would do instead is suppress their emotions and pretend yeah. themselves that they were calm. And that, you know, that's just really unhelpful.
0: So I have a question that might be kind of dark that I've always wondered about. Do you think that people who are the really deep thinkers, the philosophers, and this is a generalization as well, that are more, have more of a tendency to be depressed because they question more about life. They might see more of the hopelessness, the pointlessness than others who are blissfully ignorant. And I think to not be depressed is kind of to be blind to or to ignore some of the realities of life, whereas wouldn't it be better to be blissfully ignorant rather than <laughs> depressed? What do you think? Does thinking too much make you sad?
1: Oh, it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think you're definitely onto something. Um, it's a sort of time-honored philosophical conundrum mm-hmm. that says, like, you know, if you could step into a, uh, like a booth, that would then be locked behind you. And, and, and due to the magic of uh, computer simulations, you would believe that everything that happened to you in the rest of life was exactly what needed to happen to you. You know, yeah. all the happiness you wanted, but also all the challenges that you needed to be a good person. But actually you were just inanimate in a booth, like you're in the matrix or something. Yeah. Um, would you choose that? Hmm. And some people say they would, but like, I'm like, no, you have to see what life's really like. You have to know what's really going on. Um, and there is this finding, it's been questioned a bit, but this, this phenomenon that's known as depressive realism, which suggests that depressed people uh, actually have a more accurate perception of things in the wider world than um, than non-depressed people. And if you ask people to sort of, just little things in tests, like judge how much time has passed or something like that, um, between two noises or something, you know, um, the depressed people <laughs> get it right more often because they, they see the way the world <laughs> really is. Um, there's, there's a couple of important caveats about that. And one of them is if you are a thinking person and you are prone to a gloomy outlook on life, which by the way, I only sort of partly am, I'm, I'm more annoyed by positive thinking than I am gloomy, uh, in a natural way. But, um, firstly, you don't have any choice in the matter, right? You can't, you can't successfully choose to be someone who is not uh, a deep thinker and a person who questions the things in a, in a philosophical way. Like Mm -hmm. if you never were that person, maybe life will be fine. But once you are that person, it's too late. The the solution is not going to be, uh, to sort of regress into some, uh, state where you sort of forgot that, uh, that these questions exist. I think that, um, there is something else as well, which is that you can pursue, you can use that same talent for thinking and for questioning things, Mm -hmm. uh, to, to get through to like another level of understanding in the world. And, um, you know, I don't want to make huge claims for my book specifically, but I couldn't have thought through these things or, or, um, or sort of, um, figured anything out that I have succeeded in figuring out in life, unless I was the kind of person who, who thought about them and, and questioned and read things. So firstly, you don't get to choose if you're that kind of person, do you? And, uh, right. and then secondly, I think you can use that skill Uh, in the service of a meaningful life. Um, You might also then see that perhaps a really meaningful life for you is not uh, an endlessly happy life. It's not a sort of life of constant high mood that, that you want to be present for both kinds of experiences, negative ones as well.
0: Huh, I like that. Okay, so I need to get through like once, because I'm like, should I stop reading about philosophy? Is this just going to be bad for me? (laughs) (laughs) Is this going to make me sadder and sadder? But like you're saying, we'll break through and then kind of get through that and then start to find, well, what is going to make me happy? Or how can I at least be content and okay with the way things are and not struggling against uncertainty, as we said before?
1: Yeah, I I think that's right. I think there's always a little bit of a risk that you turn it into like a journey that like, oh, in 10 years time, then finally I'm going to understand. I think it might be more a question of of saying, well, you know, how could I how could I shift my perspective kind of right now to to just see these things differently, not not pretend that the troubles in my life are not troubles, but to sort of just ask what the status is of the thought thoughts that bother me and the emotions that afflict me um Eckhart Tolle has this great question um you should ask yourself he says um do I have a problem right now like right now and it's not impossible that the answer could be yes but it is amazing how often the answer is no you know totally freaked out about something you're like hang on this hasn't happened yet it might not happen it might happen in a completely different way to the one that I'm worrying about Um, so I think that's a really useful way to sort of turn this into a a question for now instead of that. There's always that risk of like, you know, I'm on a long journey and maybe by the time I'm 80, I'll have figured it out or something.
0: I think an example of now is when I was struggling with this insomnia, which good news is it's a bit better, is, um... A weird thing about insomnia that if you've never had it before that people might not realize is that it's not just that you can't sleep at night, it's then you're anxious about it. And then the hours leading up to bedtime, I'm like, oh, God, what's going to happen tonight? I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. It's going to be horrible again. But I could have said, well, wait a minute. I'm okay right now. I'm not having insomnia yet, and I'm not going to bed for four hours yet. Do I have a problem right now? no. I can worry about it later <laughs> when I'm up at four in the morning.
1: Yeah. I mean, actually insomnia is another, is an obviously a really good example of the, the thing that is the technical term is ironic processes uh, in psychology. Yeah. Back to the not thinking of a polar bear and all you can think of is a polar bear. Oh God. Yes. Yeah. I mean, as soon as you <laughs> try to fall asleep, that's just ridiculous. That, that's going to keep you awake. The very, the very, yep. um, the very effort is going to, is going to keep you awake. Um, if anything, you should be trying really hard to stay awake as long as you can and see what happens but um but best of all, you just sort of put that whole put that whole uh, tussle aside, yeah
0: yeah, it's maddening. So I wanted to talk a little bit about goals and having goals and goal setting, and a lot of times we're told in popular culture that we have to have goals, we can't get anywhere unless we have a goal that we're striving for. So do you think that having goals is a good thing or a bad thing?
1: Well, there's a chapter in my book that basically says we've gone far too far in the direction of, 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 of goals. But I'm not going to say that they're a completely bad thing that you should just sort of have none and meander through life. I mean, I don't think you can, choose, I don't think it's actually possible to not have goals anyway, really, right? Because you're always trying to do something, even if all that is, is, uh, I don't know, get drunk as fast as possible, or something. You know, like, uh, but, but but I think the idea of career goals and goals for our lives and goals for our relationships and all that stuff. I think the point, the problem is that we have gone far too far in the direction of sort of fixating on them and, and, and holding them uh, really, really tightly. There's a lot of research now to suggest, in a in an organisational context, in in companies, and things like that, that um, that if you sort of promote certain targets to too much. It has all sorts of backfiring effects. It causes people to cut ethical corners or, you know, just do their work very badly in order to meet the target or whatever. And I think it's a little bit the same, uh, in a, in a human life. You know, one of the examples that I quote in the book is if, if someone, someone might have the goal to be a, a, a multimillionaire by the age of 30 or something, and they could succeed. Uh, because while you know completely alienating their family uh ruining their marriage and um uh, and destroying their health well that isn't really succeeding in the goal that is not that is a failure to i mean you are succeeding in the goal but it's a failure to see the way that goals are all connected uh to each other there's also a kind of narrowing of vision i think that comes if you're like you're so dead set on achieving this particular role in the company or or this or success in this creative field that you don't hear when opportunity comes knocking uh, at uh, from other directions you know, and things that could actually be a really good fit for you, but, but you're just, you're so focused on the, on the goal. Oh, yeah. And then just on a sort of, finally on a sort of deeper, but maybe more sort of spiritual level or something, it's um, by definition, it, it it makes you think always about the future as being the place when you'll really uh, be, uh, you know, fulfilled. It's always like in three years time, that's when I'm going to be uh, happy. And of course, if you get there, even if you do succeed in the goal, you'll just come up with another goal and, yeah. uh, for three years later. So constantly you're sort of overvaluing future time and undervaluing present time and your your present life, which as Eckhart Tolle will point out, is the only time it ever really is, only ever actually is now, um, mm-hmm. becomes this kind of pure, just an instrument to get somewhere else. Right. Uh, and ultimately, I think that's no way to live. Sometimes you've got to do it, of course. You've got to study for exams to get qualifications. You've got to sometimes do jobs that you don't love in order to pay the rent. But, but you know, this idea that we should elevate into the, the, the best way to be, um, uh, an approach that is all about fulfillment always being just over the horizon, uh, clearly has a few mm-hmm. problems.
0: I'm so glad you said that, because that was also another big thing for me in the book was, and to to repeat a little bit of what you just said, because it was so important, was that, and I do this a lot, I'll be like, well, if I, once I do this, this, and this, and once I have this X, Y, Z, then I'll be happy. Like, then my life will be the way I want it to be. Everything will be good once I have those things. Mm -hmm. But that's always in the future. And a lot of times, and this is kind of about goals too, is that we think, well, once I have XYZ, I'll be happy, but we don't really define what that is. Let's say people are like, okay, once I make more money, I'll be happy. But what is more money? Like, What is that actual number? Because you probably won't be happy. Like, Let's say you do get a raise, but you're still not going to be happy because then you want more or you want something else. We're always chasing this thing in the future that can never really happen. So we're sort of stuck in this
1: unhappiness loop. Yeah. I mean, I think, and there's two things, what you said there, right? I mean, one thing that we know a lot about and people like don't need telling is that the things we think will make us happy are not those things. So, you know, this is old news. Um, becoming incredibly rich does not seem to be highly correlated with, uh, being really, really happy. Certainly being comfortably off is, is better than poverty for happiness as well as for other reasons. But, but, um, but money is not the thing, you know, owning a fleet of 20 sports cars and having no close relationships in your life is not a good, is uh, not a good recipe for success. So that's a, oh, for happiness. So that's the content of different goals. But the other thing that you point out, you know, even a good, wholesome goal, like, um, like wanting to be surrounded by a uh, loving relationship or, or wanting to have dedicated your life to good causes that you believe in, whatever it is, even those, if you're thinking about them always as being fulfilled in the future then you're sort of doing yourself out of you're sort of cheating yourself of actual of actual life um, right so i think you know they both work together you can even have quite wholesome ideas about happiness but still be putting it off putting it off putting it off into the future
0: yes uh I hear myself in that. Okay. So I have an example for you. Let's see if you can use some of your stoicism or Buddhism or any of the tactics from your book to deal with this situation. Because this is the type of thing I hear from other HSPs, highly sensitive people, um, that, that we struggle with. So let's say that you have a coworker or a family member who it just drives you crazy. You're really f- frustrated. Uh, it's frustrating to be around them, and they're annoying, and you wish you didn't have to deal with them, but you have to because you sit next to them in, at the office or whatever. What and I hear from people all the time, like, oh, this person next to me—they won't stop talking, or they chew really loudly, or, <laughs> or they talk too much in meetings, and it just—they can't stop thinking about how annoyed they are about it. What would be a tactic to stop letting things like that bother you
1: so much? Ah, it's just so interesting to, <laughs> and I always on slightly dicey ground when I address because hmm. I always think like someone's going to listen who knows me and who used to work in a newspaper news. <laughs> They're going to know that I'm as. I'm so annoyed by people talking too loudly at the next desk or something. Um, I think I've got a bit better, and I think I've learned the hard way, but um, Mm -hmm. but I don't want to pretend to perfection here. Um, I I mean, I think the first thing is that nothing that I'm talking about here that we're talking about today I think means you shouldn't take normal, sensible measures to um, deal with something. There is no reason... Not to try to politely ask somebody to be a bit quieter with something, no reason to not wear headphones if you're allowed to 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 block out certain noises. The problem of course is that if you try to block out every single noise, then any noise that remains is twenty times more irritating than it was before. Um, <laughs> if you try to sort of exert that level of control over your um surroundings then then that's not then that's where it starts to get get unhelpful so yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is take normal measures to minimize things don't uh, don't complicate things more than they need to be complicated mm-hmm. but after that i think that what comes from well, so you could do some negative visualization right you could say like okay right. what's the actual worst thing that happens here maybe the worst thing is that i do an hour's less work today than i would have done if this wasn't happening um mm-hmm. and that's not good no one said it was going to be good but it's also not um a bit like Armageddon and the end of the uh, universe or something. Um, Mm -hmm. It's it's just a small negative thing. And then I think that this perspective shift, which, as I say, just sort of comes at you gradually and has come on me gradually researching and writing the book. It's not necessarily something that will uh, shift instantly for you, uh, your whole world, but is just to look at what's going on in that situation. So like the example of someone making irritating noises uh nearby. I'm not a specialist in uh HSP stuff and I'm not going to pretend to be, but but you know, you just see what's happening there. There is first of all the kind of sense impression. You know, there's the there's the noise that is falling on your ears and is being processed uh, by your by your mind so that you are aware of it. But then there's all this kind of additional thought that the Buddhists would call, you know, aversion. Um about how much you hate it, about how much it's going to cause you problems, about how unfair it is and inconsiderate of that person to uh, not think about other people. And you can't necessarily get rid of the noise, but you can sort of get rid of that superstructure of of sort of spiraling thoughts that, that make it into so much worse. That's the distinction in Buddhism, I think, between pain and suffering. You know, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. The, 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 you can you sort of cognitively build the thing into something much more than it is. And one of the famous older Buddhist teachers, I forget who, said like you, know, you can almost think of the noise as from outside as sort of already being in your mind. It's like it's already a part of the environment, and and it's already a part of all your senses. It, it becomes very strange from that perspective to then be like I'm going to stamp this thing out. It's just like it's just there. And and the, the other thing it's reminding me of, actually, when I went on that first retreat, they they put me in a room. Uh, it's in the middle of Pine forests in, uh, in Massachusetts, this meditation center. And I went to this r- little room where you sleep and the blinds were closed. And I was like, I don't believe it. They put me, like, there's a freeway here that nobody told me about. And they put me in a room <laughs> looking out on the freeway and the noise of the cars going by is intolerable. And for a split second, I actually thought that. I was like, this is just going to be a disaster. And I looked out the window and it was just the wind in the pine trees, which in the pine mm. forest is incredibly loud. And if you close your eyes and don't know what you're listening to, it does sound like trucks going past. Wow. And, <laughs> and as soon as I knew what the noise was, it wasn't a problem. It was beautiful. It was lovely. It was nothing better than falling asleep to the noise of the wind in the pines. Now, what that tells me is that there's something going on here that is not what it appears to be, right? It's not really the noise that is causing the problem. It is the beliefs and the constructs that I'm imposing upon the noise. And, you know, just seeing that distinction counts for a lot. And in terms of techniques, you know, I haven't come up with anything better than simple breath meditation. Just get a little bit better at, you know, getting in the gap there between between the, the things that happen, the senses that come in, the sense impressions that come in and just interrupting the the next part which is the the huge uh edifice of critical and negative thoughts that you build on top of it
0: because i guess inherently there is nothing bad about for example a coworker making a lot of noise it's you are deciding you're assigning it that it's something bad
1: right so I, you know, I mean also be with negative thoughts that's fine too you know i mean i, I don't want to say like you've got to think positively about that about about the <laughs> about the co-workers' noise, but just see what's actually going on and notice the distinction between yes, the noise itself, which is neutral, and the things on top of it. The, uh, there's a sorry, just to make the point even more. There's a, there's an old um, thing that I think also comes originally from Buddhism about how you know if you are if you're crossing a, a stream on a, in your little open boat and uh, another boat bangs into you. And you sort of wheel round full of rage uh, at this uh, boat that would have the temerity to crash into yours. And then you see that it's just an empty, drifting boat. And uh-huh. It was not steered into you. Like, nobody would carry on being angry in that situation. Right. It'd instantly be like, oh, I had the wrong beliefs about this event.
0: You know. Oh, I like that. <laughs> so of all the studies that you've done, the research that you've done, and also the things you write about in your column the topics which i love they're so fascinating what questions are are still unanswered
1: for you oh that's so good um that's such a great question i'm not whether i (laughs) thank you (laughs) i don't know but it's like um or maybe you don't know what questions usually a a question that might fill this slot in an interview will be like have you become happier or what's the best technique that you've learned and i'm like i can answer those that was whether my next question. Answer, but whether I can answer what's still um, and I mean, uh, I, I think that the perspectives that I write about in the book and that I've encountered through these different traditions, like I'm convinced that they're right and they really help me, and I know that they help other people. And the wisdom in them is is deep. I wonder whether they ever become completely second nature whether it is always a question of having to remind yourself of these things and sort of slightly deliberately put them into practice i also think it's worth saying you know i at this point in my life i don't feel like i've had a life that has been beset by that many sort of hugely terrible things there mm-hmm. some will be coming uh, others might be and i you know, I've heard from people. This is a really interesting thing about writing this book. I've heard from people who have been helped by the book, going through crises that I'm not sure I could handle. So, you know, the un, the unanswered question for me is when it goes to the next level of of bad stuff, how how well does these uh, uh. does this stance serve? Um, I I think the answer is going to be a good one because I've seen in other people. Um, uh, and just re- and read about thousands more other people, you know. Um, and, you know, even if I was, it wasn't, it's still useful on a day-to-day basis. But that's the sort of, that's a big, um, I guess that is a big question, yeah.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. You know, I forgot to ask you, are you an introvert or an extrovert?
1: I did some very dubious tests once. It wasn't Myers-Briggs even. It was some sort of uh, thing derived from it, and I was told that I was right in the middle of that. Uh, cont- okay. And and I sort of feel that way. Like I, um, yeah. I recognize deeply both the idea that I need social interaction to feel energized and that mm. I need time alone to replenish myself from social interaction. So I think right. I, I am fairly <laughs> near the middle of that, uh, thing. Yes. I, I occasionally in the past, I've booked sort of vacations where I go off on hiking holidays, totally alone for six mm. days. And I think it's going to be absolutely wonderful. And for two days it is. And then I'm just like, Oh man, I really need
0: people. Yes. Yeah. How about you? Where are, I was where are just you on set? Oh, I'm totally an totally introvert. introvert.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah. So I didn't want to be the person who's like, okay, what are the things, you know, what is your list of what people should do? But uh, <laughs> I guess what I want to ask is of all, so of all of your studies and experiences, what do you do on a daily basis? You did mention that you were just at a meditation retreat, but. How do you try to put things these things into your life to be happier?
1: Well, I do try to meditate almost every day for twenty twenty five minutes. I'm not; it's not. I don't have an unblemished record, but I think um, I've really noticed. It's just weird how much better the day goes um, hmm. when I find the time for that. Um, do, you do,
0: it, do you do it in the morning?
1: Yes, almost always. It's one of those things like it's either going to happen first thing or it's not going to happen. It's yeah. not. <laughs> um, another thing I've made a practice of recently, since the book came out actually, so it's not in there. But it's related, I think, is um, the famous morning pages, uh, trying to, which I'm sure you know about, right? Just trying to fill. Well, in my case, like, no. okay, just this idea that comes from a, a, a creativity teacher called Julia Cameron, and her idea is that you just free write. Uh, in my case, it's like three sides of a notebook of a, of a large format um, notebook. Uh, in handwriting, first thing in the morning, just anything that is in your mind, not trying to compose a story or trying to do anything like writing writing, not writing for other people to read, um, mm-hmm. just sort of getting thought out there, sweeping away the the dust and um I find this incredibly useful as well, and I think the way it fits into what i 'm saying here is that it sort of objectifies your mental life to you, you know it puts it in a third person relationship it 's like, oh, this is all the stuff that 's going around in my head right now some of it's probably valid some of it's probably nonsense um and it sort of uh it it sort of has that effect any form of journaling i think does that to some extent so you know writing about writing to yourself about your life i think is a is a useful way to uh, achieve this kind of more accepting stance towards your what's going on inside um and i do things like you know ask myself what's the worst thing that could happen here as an antidote to anxiety. Yeah, probably not quite daily, but pretty often. So putting those things together. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm practicing quite a lot of this stuff still.
0: I like that about the writing in the morning. I've, I've heard about writing before you go to bed and like write about what you're going to do the next day, but I kind of like the idea of doing it in the morning and, and you have to handwrite it on notebook paper. You're saying think, that
1: kind of makes sense. Yeah. I, mean, I think handwriting counts for a lot more there's been yeah. a few studies but i would if anyone if there's anyone out there who would consider doing this unless unless it was handwriting like don't not do it just because uh,
0: yeah but yeah doing it on a computer for some reason seems counterproductive i'm not sure why i think the
1: crucial distinction here between the morning and the evening obviously is that you're describing some form of evening exercise that's trying to make things happen a certain way the next day totally fine not objecting to it but right. the Really important thing, I think, about morning pages is just like, if it's in your mind, it gets written. And it could be the words I can't think of anything to write about repeated over and over and over again, like Hmm. Jack Nicholson in The Shining, you know, Um, (laughs) uh, and that would be valid. It almost never happens like that. Like once you've done one page of writing almost nothing, things start bubbling up.
0: (laughs) Well, Oliver, thank you so much for your time. Can you tell us where people can find you on social media?
1: Yes, I am. Oliver Berkman. That's B-U-R-K-E-M-A-N on Twitter. That's by far the uh, place you're most likely to find me. I I am sort of on Facebook and uh, my website is oliverberkman.com, which might even be relaunched by the time uh, this goes out or maybe not.
0: (laughs) That is awesome. So I highly, highly recommend, obviously, that you check out Oliver's book, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. If you're anything like me, I think it could make a big impact on your life. And it's entertaining and fun to read as well. And it may or may not cure your insomnia. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again, Oliver, for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. It's been a pleasure. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Oliver Berkman. You can find the show notes for this episode at highlysensitiveperson.net slash episode 64. And there you'll also find a link where you can buy Oliver's book. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support it financially, then please become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash hsp. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash h-s-p. You can support the show by giving a donation in any amount per episode. Even $1 is fantastic. Another great way to support the show is by rating it on iTunes. Having lots of great reviews is the best way for people to discover this show. You can view the podcast in iTunes by just navigating to highlysensitiveperson.net slash iTunes, and that will take you right to it. As I mentioned in my last email newsletter, I'm going to be going on vacation for a couple weeks, so I think it's going to be a little longer than normal before the next episode. So don't lose hope. Don't unsubscribe. I will be back. Thanks so much for listening. See you later.